0: Oh, wait a minute! Wait a minute! That's a terrible call. That is a terrible call! Brown in the field. Jalen. Happy- oh. Lowdown's candles
1: out! Gets an to Tatum off the bounce. To the basket! <laughs> Come on, refs. Get with the
0: game. Welcome back to the Celtics Vlog Podcast. As usual, it's your boy, Adam Taylor. And today I'm joined by a Celtics Vlog teammate. His name's Coach Spins, Adam Spinella. He's been doing some great things on Celtics Vlog lately with his rookie slash player comparisons. They've been super in-depth, some great film work. Pleased to have him on How are you doing today, Ad?
1: I'm doing great here.
0: Uh, Again, two
1: Adams joining on the pod here. So quite the... uh quite the experience, but really thrilled to be on here today and talk a little bit about the upcoming NBA draft whenever it does get here.
0: Yeah, so that's the biggest question mark at the moment is when the draft's actually going to take place, if there's going to be any workouts at all. A lot of the podcasts I'm going to be doing this month are going to be draft related. It's a good learning experience for me as well because college basketball only really became a thing over here like two years ago, so I'm still getting to grips with who to look out for, what games to watch, what teams are usually high up on the on the draft boards come draft night. It's a learning experience. So I'm glad to have somebody like you on here that's part of a college team. I mean, are you the head coach, the assistant coach?
1: So I'm the assistant coach at uh, Dickinson College, which is a Division three school in central Pennsylvania. And, you know, the Division three level is a little bit different. We don't deal with a a lot of guys, of many guys that go through the NBA draft process and, and all of that. But um, I think there's a lot of similarities into how you evaluate recruits when they're 17 or 18 years old based on the film, the in-person experience that are kind of translatable to the NBA draft process. So uh, a lot of how I attack going through the, the NBA draft, you know, breakdowns and looking at different players is the same way I would go about doing it for, for guys that we recruit here.
0: And when you're looking at the film of these guys and you start doing the, the interviews, you know, you actually start to get into know the recruits on a personal level. How much of the balance do you try and strike between personality and talent level? Is there a point where he can be one of the most coachable kids on the planet, but you're just not too sure about his ceiling? So you'll pass on him, whereas you might take a guy that's got a ridiculously high ceiling, but he's not exactly coachable.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a fantastic question, Adam. And part of it for us, like we always talk about the word fit with our program, with our school. Uh, Dickinson's a high academic school. It's a top 50 liberal arts college in the country. So right off the top, fit is going to be pretty important from an academic side. We want to make sure that we are doing our part to put guys in a position to succeed in the classroom. So that puts some onus on us to not overstretch the type of kids that we recruit to make sure that, again, they can get in here and do the work and, and have good standing academically. But beyond that, I think character is the ultimate kind of difference maker. The way I always talk about it, I don't want to recruit guys that I wouldn't want to hang out with. You know, we as coaches have to spend four years with these players on the floor all the time and, and develop those relationships. So uh, the relationship aspect is a huge, huge part of it. And uh, a lot of times at our level, we'll say no to guys who have pretty strong talent because uh, you know we are not judged as closely with wins and losses as maybe division one or, or pro teams are, so for us, having that that fit and that high character is incredibly important
0: and that to me, I feel like that's going to be one of the most pertinent things that nBA teams are looking at as well, which is kind of how I'm trying to tie this in. Attitude means it, just as much as talent, right it,
1: it really does and and that's the difficult part about this process right here, usually. You can set up interviews through the draft combine. You bring them all onto your own facilities and work them out and and get to know them through through the workout days. Without clarity as to how this process is going to weigh out, a a lot of teams are going to be flying blind a little bit. And I think that what we'll see this year in particular is a lot of guys who may have smaller question marks, uh, not necessarily major red flags, they'll kind of drop down a little bit because teams will be a little more skeptical that they might not be able to get a good feeling on that player.
0: Is there any player that you've kind of read about or you've had interactions with maybe, I don't know, through other coaches in your... I'm assuming you have a network of coaches that you interact with to kind of get a grip on how things are going across different divisions. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong there. It's just kind of an assumption I've made on the spot. Is yeah, no, kind of, that's, right. that's right. Is there any player in this draft that you feel that red flag is unwarranted?
1: I'm not sure. You know, I haven't heard a ton so far on the the personality side with the guys that are coming in the draft right now. Um, And at least some of the guys that I've I've talked to don't have anything negative to say about certain guys. So for whatever reason, this draft doesn't have a ton of guys who are, you know, off-court issues coming up. It's more so, and you can get this a lot through the film, Guys who aren't necessarily the greatest decision makers or team players, and how much do you value that versus their individual skill set and their kind of upside?
0: Which you've done a perfect job of segueing us into the like the main body of this podcast. Though. That was really good. Have you got podcast experience? Because you actually done really well at that segue. <laughs> and that that I mean I've the main body. Pardon.
1: I've just done a couple of these, but I'm, I'm no match for you.
0: <laughs> no, you done that was brilliant, honestly. So. The, the main body of the podcast is you've been watching a ton of film on these guys. You've been evaluating draft level talent for the nBA. Um, I know that you're part of multiple different publications, so this work is the work you're putting in is really going in depth. So let's kind of jump straight in. When we're talking about talent, we spoke about red flags and guys that could slip down the draft board. Are there any players who you think talent wise might be slipping down that could be potentially be sleepers that are well positioned for a breakout year?
1: I really do. And, and I think the way you phrase that kind of leads me to, to talk about one more than anybody else. And that's Nico Mannion, the point guard out of Arizona. I think there's a, a lot of times public discussion kind of phrases how we and frames how we look at players. Uh, you know, the big thing that I, I talk about a lot of time is standard deviation through this process. Like most rankings don't that you see online, they don't dare go more than a few spots away from kind of the overall consensus. On guys, So if most draft boards have somebody in the 12 to 20 range, you're not going to see many people put him in their top three, even if they think that he's a top five, three or five talent and vice versa. So it's almost, an, they're always aggregates of, of the whole. And for me, I don't fear going against the grain because I, I don't think players work out in a linear fashion with the way they're drafted, right? it's not always guaranteed that guys who are picked in the top five are going to be better than guys picked six or seven or eight. It doesn't work that way. So my personal rankings tend to be really different. And with Mannion, he's almost so over-discussed and so over-picked apart that he's become underrated. A lot of people worry about his overall athleticism, his burst, and the fact that he doesn't kind of finish at the basket with a a ton of uh, volume or efficiency. but. He is a really good shooter from three, and he's probably the best pure passer in this draft. And when it comes down to feel and guys who can kind of play on ball or off ball in the backcourt, I think that he's he's somebody that's really going to be poised for kind of a strong, solid, long NBA career, so long as he's put in the right environment.
0: And as a point guard, his decision making is going to be under incredible scrutiny. What have you seen from him in terms of playmaking and ability to set guys up off the dribble, coming off the pick and rolls, coming over screens?
1: When it comes down to playmaking, I think at the NBA, you have to look at kind of pick and roll playmaking because that's where most of these point guards are going to be utilized. And what Mannion does well, he, he does three things. One, he shoots the ball and that forces defenses to come out and play you beyond the three-point line. If you're somebody like Rajon Rondo, for example, who isn't a great three-point threat, you know teams get to go underneath screens, protect the lane, and essentially dare you to shoot, which takes away part of your playmaking arsenal. It's harder to get other guys involved when people are daring you to shoot and not guarding you. So that's prong number one that Mannion really meets for me. The second is, as a pick-and-roll playmaker – He looks for the big, for the rolling big most of the time. His eyes are focused on the rim, and he's trying to get his team the highest percentage look. I think a lot of times, especially young playmakers at the college level, tend to be really east-west. You know, they'll come off a ball screen on the side that's bringing them to the middle, and they only see the half of the court that's in front of them, and they have a really difficult time reading the defense that that is behind them. And Mannion not only reads those defenses well, but is able to manipulate them in a way – that gets his team the highest percentage shot, which is going to be a layup or a dunk for the role man. And the third thing he does really well thats just always stands out to me, he's really fundamentally sound. He plays off of two feet. He's not the type of guy that's going to leave his feet, get airborne, and then have to make a decision in the air. I think there's a lot of ball security that comes along with that. And as somebody who's not the most explosive athlete, uh, he's going to have to be able to, to make those plays under control and not speed himself up. So I, I think he's, uh, he's really unorthodox in that way. He's got a pace to him that almost dictates to the defense what he's going to do instead of reading the defense. And the ability to combine that with fundamentally sound playing off two feet is, uh, is something that's going to limit the amount of turnovers that he's forced.
0: An NBA draft.net has him mucked at going around about 12th in this year's draft. Is that where you feel his range is, like say 12 to 15? Or do you think he could be a guy that surprises people, goes in the low 20s, or maybe he goes in the top 10?
1: I don't. So, again, a lot of this comes down to perception. Uh, from what I've seen, Mannion really started the year as a potential top five or six pick. And then as the season wore on, he ended up being in that late lottery. And now some draft rankings and and experts like I know Kevin O'Connor at the Ringer recently put something out which had him in the low twenties on his overall big board. So the perception on Mannion is souring, and what that's probably going to do is drive down his draft position. Uh, you know, on, on my big board, I, I think I have him fifth overall. So I'm a huge Nico Mannion guy, and that I know that goes against the grain, um, but uh, again. If you we're trying to peg him where his draft stock really is, it's probably going to be in the 15 to 25 range come draft night.
0: Which could fall really well for Boston. If they're looking to obtain a guard at that around about that area with one of their picks, do you feel like he could do, be a good fit playing back up to Kemba and playing alongside Marcus Smart?
1: I think he could. Um you know, I, I, they probably can find a better fit for this overall team in the direction that they're going to complement Kemba instead of be somebody who's behind him with that that first pick that they have in, in the first round. But if he's still around at 26, which is where they're currently projected to have their second pick in the first round, uh, I'd have no qualms about picking him up. Again, he's, he's the fifth prospect on my personal draft board. So I'm, I'm a huge fan and, and would advocate for the Celtics getting him wherever they could.
0: Which leads us on to, obviously, because you say that he's fifth on your big board. Are there any other players in that top 10 on your personal big board that you feel are getting a bit of a hard time at the moment that will probably go a lot lower than what they deserve to be?
1: Yeah, there's, there's another one who, who I put in that sleeper category, and that's Jalen Smith from Maryland. Just think he's a, a, a fantastically productive big man. He's about 6'10", a little bit over a seven-foot wingspan. He averaged 15.5 points 10.5 rebounds per game two and a half blocks. Uh, He did that while shooting 37% from three. So it's almost one of those en vogue picks, if you will, like a guy who checks all the boxes that we look for in a modern big. And for me, I love having that versatility to either be a pick-and-roll threat or a pick-and-pop threat because he shoots it. I think that he's tremendous in the open floor, and so many teams can inculcate that into their playing style really easily. And I also don't buy into a lot of the, the negatives that people have around them. You know, we talk a lot about strength and physicality and the maturity of a player's body as we go through this draft process. But perhaps I'm jaded by working with a lot of, you know, 18 to 22-year-olds as part of my job, but their bodies really only start to develop when they're ready to. And if I'm trying to pick a, some sort of a skill that I would feel comfortable teaching at the NBA level and saying this is an area where I can definitely get this guy to improve. It's on the strength side. It's trying to make sure that he adds the right type of muscle and, and is able to translate well to an NBA body. There's no doubt that Smith has to fill out his frame a little bit. He's got some weak lower body stuff and he's gotten pushed around on the block at times in college. But again, if I have faith in my strength and conditioning program that we're going to put together for our players, I'm looking at his talents, the versatility that he has on offense and on defense to be either switchable or you know, a rim protector and drop pick-and-roll coverage. And, and I think that he's just a fantastic steal late in this draft.
0: I like the fact he wears the goggles. That's a throwback, like the goggle glasses. No, no, I just...
1: love, love the goggle look from him too. And, and you know, the, the thing with Smith that, that I think a lot of people overlook sometimes is – he was really impactful in a tough conference. The, the Big Ten has a lot of strong physical big men, and we tend to look at his frame and see a couple times where he gets pushed around and say he's probably going to get bullied at the next level. But, again, he was super productive starting 31 games at Maryland this year, averaging a double-double, and, and was well on his way to being one of the best players in the conference. So I tend to not, not worry too much about his overall production at the next level.
0: Yeah, his three-point percentage is respectable, albeit on just a shade under three attempts per game. But albeit, he's still showing signs that he'd be able to grow into a legitimate stretch four, maybe stretch five. Production seems absolutely solid. His free-throw percentage is not terrible for a big man. Sometimes you see those guys struggle at the line. I like the look of this guy. Uh, again, I've pulled him up on NBA nbadraft.net, and they have him at 39th overall are you thinking that might be high though?
1: That's definitely low. This is more of a overall philosophy thing for me. I, I don't really believe in taking bigs early in the first round unless they're a transcendent talent. And a lot of the reason for that is because I think they're a dime a dozen these days. You can find a ton of guys who you can plug into whatever role you need for your team. If you need a stretch shooting big, if you need a rim protector, somebody who's going to go in there and rebound and play angles. Like There are a lot of different ways you can win with guys at those positions. The ones that I tend to value more in terms of draft position are those guys who maybe have the freak upside or the versatility to fill many of those roles. So, you know, right now the Celtics have Anis Kanter is a little bit more of their back-to-the-basket scorer. Tice, it tends to be more of your kind of complementary piece who can stretch the floor a little bit. And then Robert Williams is the athletic, the wild card, the guy who goes in there and flies and gets everything. They have one guy who checks kind of each box that you would need for different matchups. And Smith colors in multiple boxes, even though he's not excellent at one of them, he can fit in two or three of those categories. So for me, that's what I value more. I think that guys like that tend to have more value on draft night because you can mold them to be multi-dimensional, and then you can go on the free agent market or scour elsewhere and try to get guys that fit the specific niches. So uh, I think Smith probably draft-wise ends up late first, early second round. But again, I I, uh, I know I'm biased because I, I love his type of kind of athleticism and style.
0: Would you say he's got one of the highest ceilings for non-lottery players in this entire draft?
1: Yeah, I, I do. And I think a lot of that comes with how he will perform once his body kind of fills out.
0: Yeah, it's going to be, especially if he falls to, say, 30th in the first round where Boston's projected with the box pick. Last pick of the first round, Do you would you be happy with them taking a fly on in there?
1: Oh yeah, oh, I'd I'd love to have Jalen uh, <laughs> Smith there. His nickname is Sticks, and I I mean, there's something just endearing about having the Time Lord and Sticks together as your your long time uh, front court for the future.
0: I love these nicknames. Some of them are brilliant, and Sticks would fit fitting ex- perfectly. So we've looked at two sleepers now. So let's look at some of the guys who you feel like have ridiculously high upside that would be available where Boston's projected picks are. So if you've got enough knowledge of multiple players at that position, feel free to give a few names out there so everybody listening can go and do their research and come to their own opinions on who they'd prefer. But from your educated knowledge base and the work that you've been doing on all this film work, and you may have even spoken to some of these guys during recruiting processes a few years back, who do you feel like are going to be the guys that could really come in and make a difference for Boston
1: yeah, it's an interesting question. You know, I think that anytime we evaluate where the Celtics are at right now, they're looking for kind of the best combination that they can find value-wise at the, on their draft board of who can help this right away and who's too good of a long-term prospect to kind of pass up. So, you know, I'll give you one name for kind of each category. I think a long-term prospect that might be too good to pass up would be Precious Achua the front court guy out of Memphis. Um, he's probably the most versatile front court defender in this draft. He's a guy who can guard one through five. He's super long and athletic and bouncy. And even though his shooting form and kind of results are, are a mess, like he, he made over 30% of his threes at Memphis this year. And his offense is incredibly raw. But the upside of his kind of defensive ability to be a four or a five and somebody who switches across positions, protects the rim, guards the ball late in the clock on the perimeter, uh, there's, there's a, he's just this giant ball of clay that uh, we have never really seen Danny Ainge and the Celtics take. And when you have three picks in the first round and you know a, a decent amount of young talent, he's probably that type of high upside guy you could go with there. There's so much upside to his athletic ability, but so little consistency to it. And those guys are hard to peg for where they're going to be drafted. I think he's uh, probably a, a guy whose name could go as high as eight and as low as 28. Like right now there's probably a really wide range for him. So, you know, you mentioned a guy that might be able to come in and play right away. I don't know if I would, would consider him somebody that could log minutes on a, you know, a, a top five team in the league i just don't know if consistently he would be there yet but in terms of long-term potential uh yeah he's he's definitely top of the barrel when you get outside of that lottery
0: and this is what worries me with a few of these guys like uh, i've been quite vocal about romeo langford's stop start career in boston this year and how being on a team that's contending and then being in a position that's already stacked on that squad and being kind of shipped down to main, which is good because you're getting the reps in, but then being pulled back and playing two to four minutes a game, then the next night you may play 10. I feel like in an ideal world, it's brilliant bringing in guys with this long-term, ridiculously high upside potential. But unless you're in a position to give them some, some way to get the reps necessary to improve your skill set, to the point where you can start realising some of that potential to get onto an NBA floor and then start making those bigger strides. Are drafting guys like that really just picking them so other people don't pick them? Like, I understand why you do it, but for me, you're Joachim, I feel like sometimes with the way this roster's constructed there's a bunch of really talented young guys that aren't getting the the run they need to become the impact players that they could be.
1: Yeah, you know, They had, what, five rookies on the roster this past season, and most of them, if not all of them, are under contract or likely to come back in some capacity, whether it's to the Celtics or to the main Red Claws. And then you add three first-round picks in this draft. That's too many young guys to construct a roster with. So there's going to be some fluidity to that situation between now and the beginning of next season. I don't want to jump around too much. I know we're going to talk a little bit more specifically about each of the draft picks for the Celtics, but they've got three of them in the first round. And to me, the optimal strategy is to kind of go after one big one shooter that can come on the floor and space it right away. And one kind of stash pick, if you will, somebody that they would either send to the G league with hopes that they're going to continue to develop or an international prospect that they put in their back pocket and make sure that they're not having that money count against their salary cap in the, in the interim. So what combination or order they go in of those three really remains to be seen and is probably not going to be determined until they see the options that are in front of them. But it's really highly unlikely that we see eight young guys and even seven of them make it on, onto the roster next year.
0: Oh, There's just too much youth to be to be able to put a contending team on the floor once the playoffs are all around. In terms of the young guys that are currently there, Who do you feel like underperformed? Like, I came into this season so high on Carson Edwards, and then my hopes for him were kind of dashed. Was you high on Carson coming in, or did you kind of envision his struggles? I wasn't that
1: high on Carson. Uh, I don't have the notes in front of me, but I think he was somewhere in the mid to late 40s on my draft board. And, uh, you know, a lot of the reason for that came around how he finishes at the rim. I I think his, his shooting utility is awesome, but, he really struggled in college at times to to finish amongst the trees. And I think that translated to the NBA level this year, just wrote a piece about a week, week to two weeks ago on him for Celtics blog, talking about how he can continue to study some of the better undersized finishers and continue to work on his footwork before he gets to the rim. So, you know, I, I wasn't that high on Edwards, but one guy I was high on who maybe disappointed a little bit this year, just wasn't ready for, a major role was Romeo Langford I was high on his overall upside as a scorer and I still am definitely as time goes on you got to get something out of him and I don't know if his skill set is complementary to guys like Tatum or Brown or, or Hayward that they have on on their roster that they're definitely building around for the long term.
0: Romero, for me, the most impressive thing he gave when he was on the floor towards the latter part of the season before the the pandemic hit was his defence, the way he jumps passing lanes, the way he hangs guys on ball. And I feel like that's why he was starting to see a considerable uptick in minutes as the season wore on because the way to win in minutes on any team is usually defence, especially a Brad Stevens team. I don't think that his offensive game, as you say, is built for the way the Celtics want to run that second unit. He's a very, very much a slasher. I don't feel like that pull up's where it needs to be. I don't feel like he has confidence in that pull up himself either. So, what with that said, and I had Ben Pfeiffer on, who's a draft guy for a uh, preps to pros yesterday. It'd be two days ago by the time this is released. And he was talking about maybe packaging a few of those picks and trying to strike a deal with Atlanta to move up into the top five or the projected top five. Would you, how would you feel if that piece that they needed to move in terms of a player was Romeo Langford?
1: Yeah, you know, I listened to the pod with Ben this morning, actually, and, and thought about this idea of trading up. Um, I think Romeo's probably the right guy to throw in a package just because there's still upside and potential to him that a lot of teams will be interested in and it it's getting to the point where it doesn't feel like he's a great fit just with the core that already exists in Boston. Uh that said I'm I'm kind of cautious overall of trying to trade up in this draft. I think unless you can get one of the top 2 or 3 guys that are on the board, uh I don't know what much what value comes in tying up more money into one player when it's just overall a pretty volatile draft when you get outside the top three or four guys. like There's just not as much certainty and security that I would feel in taking one of those guys there. So I would almost rather have a couple bites at the apple farther back with fewer financial consequences tied into each than rounding them all up, trying to move up in the draft and putting all your eggs in one basket.
0: And that's totally fair. That makes perfect sense. Plus you get multiple options to hit lucky with a pick rather than as you say throwing all those eggs in with in terms of Romeo how do you feel about his jump shot as I said a moment ago to me it's a confidence issue I don't feel he he feels comfortable when he's pulling up for that jump shot you probably see see that far more mechanically than what I do I I don't
1: have many issues with his jump shot and again we talk about kind of bias and perspective that we have I got to see Romeo play a lot when he was in high school I coached a high school game in the state of Indiana while he was uh, while he was still in high school and he he was a special scorer there's no doubt about it he shot the ball well he created for himself in isolations and showed all of those high potential skills that you look for and it doesn't look like the same shot it looks like it's been tinkered with a little bit and i'm sure a couple injuries to his hand and wrist have kind of necessitated some changes or or messed with those mechanics a little bit but I don't see a ton that I would say, okay, this is a definitive fix for it. I think it's just about consistency for
0: him. And do you agree that maybe a change in scenery, I know it's only one year, so this is very, very premature. Do you feel like a change in scenery where he could be starting or getting a considerable amount of minutes each night would be more beneficial?
1: I think any time you can learn on the job and, and learn by doing, it's going to be more beneficial for you, not just in the long term, but kind of for your, your general happiness. Um, So if Romeo's the type of guy who really needs that, sure. It's, it's definitely gonna be more beneficial for him, but if we're looking at it from a, you know, the perspective of what he's earned right now, I don't know if he just goes into any other situation and is going to be more than a 10 to 12 minute a night guy. I just don't think he's consistently earned that yet. So um, again, not to say that they're, there should be a souring on his long-term prospects. He's just—he's going to take a little bit longer to come around than, than most guys who are drafted in the top 12.
0: Yeah, and I have high hopes for Romeo. I really do. I hope he can make it work. I feel like he'd be able to add a ridiculously high upside coming off the bench in terms of scoring, if he can figure it out. Moving on to the second pick with Boston's, um, in Boston's draft, who do you have sitting around that region, and who do you feel like would be a good fit with the best upside?
1: Yeah, so we we mentioned that kind of Boston is scheduled for three first round picks right now. Uh, Tankathon dot com puts that as seventeen, twenty six, and thirty. With seventeen, I mentioned Precious Achua being kind of that front court guy there, who just has so much raw upside. I think a couple other shooters, just to quickly mention, at seventeen, Sadiq Bay from Villanova, Aaron Nismith from Vanderbilt, and then the athletic wing Josh Green out of Arizona. I think those are all all names that kind of seamlessly fit in with their ability to stretch the floor, play, you know, strong enough defense right away to, to make an impact there. But, you know, a lot of this at, at 26 is dependent on which position or which way they go at 17. Uh, if they go with one of those shooters that I just mentioned, I would love to see Jalen Smith from Maryland end up here. Uh, there's a ton of other bigs that are in this late, you know, tail end of the first round, early part of the second, whose names come up just to, kind of go through four real quickly. I'll, I'll give you my order, so to speak, on them and, and how my preference would be. Uh, first, Daniel Otoru from Minnesota. Second would be Vernon Carey from Duke. After that, Zeke Nagy, Arizona. And then last and, and a pretty considerable drop-off between there is Isaiah Stewart from Washington. Uh, Adam, do you know much about any of those guys or have any uh, opinions of your own on, on any of them?
0: The only one I've heard anything about is Naji, Zeke Nagy. Okay.
1: Yeah. You know, I think that it's going to be a stylistic and flavor profile type of thing. I think Carey's probably the best offensive player. Stewart, the highest motor and best rebounder. Najee, the most athletic. And Otoru, kind of the strongest, most anchored of the group. So, uh, again, kind of flavor of the week based on what the Celtics really want and and the direction that they think they'd go in. And then, again, if they go big earlier at 17 – I think that they they should look at a couple of guys who are going to be just immediate impact shooters and guys who space the floor a little bit. So uh, Isaiah Joe out of Arkansas is probably the best shooter that's not going to be taken in the top 20. And then James Ramsey from Texas Tech is another kind of high upside scorer in, in the backcourt there. So a little bit redundant when you look at guys like Carson Edwards or, or Romeo Langford over the long term. But uh, I, I don't ever see the downside in taking shooting when you have the opportunity.
0: I never see the downside in having shooters, but I always believe that you do need some solid defense coming off the bench too, which this season seemed to be okay for the Celtics. For me, the defense of Grant Williams and Semi Ojeleye when they were on the floor together was always a positive. The shooting was where they were struggling. It was one of the big topics coming into the trade deadline. They need to trade for some shooting. It's been a recurring theme now for multiple months. So if they can draft a shooter, either of those picks, then I feel like that alleviates some of the pressure on that second unit. One person that does get mentioned to me, I get a few people direct messaging me about him on Twitter, is Sadiq Bay. Do you feel like he's a guy that could make a difference?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I really like Sadiq Bay. I have him as, uh, I think, the 10th highest prospect on my overall board right now. So I'm a huge fan. He comes in and he he knocks down threes at over a 40% clip. He can guard two through four because he's long and he he's great with angles and uses his body well. Uh, but he's he's another really high character, fundamentally sound guy, which are people that I'm usually a- attracted to with their skill set and, and kind of what they offer. Uh, he was a point guard uh, in his younger days and really hit a growth spurt late in, in his career. He was at the Sidwell Friends School in Washington, D.C., and had the the privilege of coaching one of his really good friends and high school teammates uh, at my last job. And, you know, I think the, the character concerns that you can have sometimes through this process, Sadiq has none. And for me, that's really comforting for this team is that he can come in, he can be a role player, he knocks down shots, he's not a defensive liability, and you really know what you're getting out of him. So, if he's available at 17, I would love if the Celtics took him.
0: And then we move on to pick 30, which by all means is most likely going to be the pick they try and make a draft and stash if there's a decent enough prospect available.
1: Yeah, they they have to consider that as their option there. And you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if they do that at twenty six either, because as we mentioned, there's kind of four or five big guys that are going to be around in that late first, early second range. That if they fall in love with an international guy Take him at 26, and then know that you're going to have your choice of a couple different bigs around at 30. So if they like more than one of those guys, uh, just from a draft order you know, uh, standpoint, I, I think that probably makes more sense. But I'm not as well studied on all the international guys right now that are going to be kind of outside of that top 10 or 15. So uh, don't have too many names to throw out to you there, Adam, but I, I know that you know, if they have the chance to trade back and move one of their one of these two 26 or 30 picks in the the late part of the first round to become a 2021 first round pick, uh, I would definitely do that because I think it spaces out their their cap situation a little bit more. And I, I have a feeling next year's draft is going to be a little bit more uh have a little bit more firepower than this year's.
0: It's really interesting you bring that up because the amount of people I've spoken to over the last few days is on kind of cramming draft information into my brain because I've left it really late and I'm trying to just get as much info into my brain as possible. You're the first person that's even entertained the idea of moving out of this draft into another one, which to me is one of the most logical ideas. As you say, you're spreading the cap and then you take another year to take, to evaluate who you bring in this year and see what holes need filling, or see if you, if you do a Donovan Mitchell and draft a guy who all of a sudden becomes this perennial name in the rookie of the year race Uh, when it comes to international guys the only person the only player that seems to really be getting repeated um from the information that i'm reading from anybody whose brains i'm picking is poku pokovet pokoveskin that guy with a name that no one can pronounce do you know what i mean yes i do um he looks like he could be a really good a really good prospect. Again, similar to Jalen Smith, he's tall, he's very skinny, very, very, very skinny, he needs to put on quite a little bit of weight in terms of muscle. But his overall skill set is very reminiscent of a young Kristaps Porzingis who was also very, very, very skinny when he came into the league. In fact, he still is, if we're being honest with each other. The Europeans, especially the Eastern Europeans, the, the Latvians, the Lithuanians, they're all... Starting to come out in the Euro League now on multiple tiers of skill levels, being these tall guys that can stretch the floor, that, that have modeled their games after Jokic and Chris Stapps, and to a very lesser extent because he's still one of the rising stars, Dancic. So, having somebody like Poku stashed away for probably two or three years, and hopefully he can start playing against better competition because he's only playing in the Greek second league. I mean, to be fair, Giannis was found in the Greek Ferg league, so there's only so much judgment we can pass.
1: Yeah, I, I try not to put too much stock in kind of figuring out how they are uh, relative to the the talent level that they play against, because they're most of these guys are still 17, 18, 19 years old when they're when they're doing this. So the fact that they play professional basketball at any level is impressive to me, because I I just I know how terrible of a player I was when I was 17 and 18. So. um you know, I think that the Celtics just they have to entertain moving one of these three picks, whether that's taking somebody that they can just stash and keep off the books for a couple of years, like you mentioned, some of the international guys, or trading it back for a 2021 pick, you know, with so many young guys on the roster and and the need for immediate contributions. I don't know how many more pet projects and long term guys they can kind of take. So um, I think there's enough firepower at 17 to definitely take one one guy that's going to be able to, to help out next year. But uh, 26 and 30, they got to do something with
0: at least one of those picks. I couldn't agree more. So here's a question now kind of moving away from the draft and back onto Coach Spinella. How, and this is something that's just kind of come to me as we've been talking and I feel like I need to ask, how do you manage to keep up with everything that's going on in Division 1, Division 2, and around the NBA while coaching your guys and still produce content. Like I thought my schedule was difficult, um, but I just don't understand how you can be breaking down film of your next opponent and then still find time to be breaking down film of all these prospects.
1: It's I uh, I don't even know most of the time, Adam, how, how to answer that. Uh, you got to hate sleep and you've got to, got to love what you do. And for me, I know how much better of a coach I am because I try to stay in tune with a lot of this stuff. And, uh, you know, a lot of the, the film breakdowns, the things that we include in articles are things that make me a better coach because I'm studying different areas of the game or things that we share with our players on an individual level. You know, I can't tell you how many times I've cheated the writing process by saying, okay, we have a player on our team who reminds me of this NBA guy. I'm going to do a dive in on him and use a lot of that film to send to our current guys on our team, because hopefully it'll help them improve a little bit and and give them someone to emulate. So, you know, if you find ways to tie it all together, it, it does work out. But it, it is a lot of work,
0: no doubt. I mean, I respect the grind. I've spoke about my schedule on here a few times, um, so I'm all for respecting the grind. In fact, I endorse anybody that's putting in the work. But I understand the reasonings a little bit more now because. As you said, you can tie everything into what I wrote about Player X, and I feel like he, come, he your game can develop into a similar form of game. So go and watch this film, and I've broke it all down for you so you can see all the nuances that I want you to work on over the summer.
1: No doubt, and and we try to do that with our players throughout the, throughout the season and the off-season in particular is going to give them – different either NBA guys or college guys that their game can be similar from or that they need to grow and, and become a little bit more alike. And, and it's uh, not a coincidence that a lot of those guys end up being article topics for me right, right afterwards. So uh, it helps me kind of kill two birds with one stone.
0: No, I respect, I respect the grind. I really do. So how about when you're looking at like D1 players that are draft eligible and they're declaring for the draft? And then you've got your Division Three players that are usually... Is the talent level that much different? Do you feel like you have players in your team that are more than capable of be declaring and getting picked up by a team, but because they're Division Three, they get overlooked?
1: I don't know if I'd say that we have a ton of guys at our level that are going to be NBA quality or, or guys that will ever really get a, a draft consensus. I'd say the elite Division Three players, the All-Americans, those guys probably can hold their own through training camps and and in the G League, no doubt. Um, But it's very rare to see somebody that goes to that NBA level. And part of the reason it's not as much about skill and kind of overall talent as it is about size and athleticism. You know, that tends to be the the biggest difference between the levels from division one on down. You see the biggest guys, the longest wingspans, uh, the most freakish athletes. Those guys tend to go to those levels. And, somebody who may be seen as undersized then slips down to division two or division three. And so, you know, I don't, again, I don't think it's a, a skill level thing. I think there's a ton of guys who are skilled enough that they could easily play at the division one level. Um, but uh, on the same token, you know, you, you have to determine what you want out of the, the process as well. There are countless guys who could kind of go division one and not have too much of an on-court impact then end up choosing other levels of basketball because they want to be more of a focal point or somebody who has the opportunity to make an on-court impact during their four years. So um, I think there's a decent amount of overlap, but we don't deal a ton with guys who are on the highest levels of that trying to to get NBA type
0: of looks. You'll come across some, there'll always be a few in the future where you're like, well, you're my first and (laughs) I'll be waiting for you to come on the podcast and absolutely blow that guy up. But that pretty much sums up the draft kind of breakdown that I was looking to have from you the only other question I've really got is is there any players we haven't touched upon that you feel have maybe the highest ceiling or the lowest floor that you might either suggest would be a really good long-term project or a guy that teams should kind of steer clear from if they're looking for an immediate impact
1: I don't know if I have anybody that I would say steer clear of, um, but in terms of the highest ceiling guys, I know there's a lot of debate about who's even the top prospect in this draft, and there's three, four, maybe even five names that get thrown into that conversation. Um, You know, the one guy that I'm highest on in that regard is Anthony Edwards, the guard out of Georgia. To me, he is Gilbert Arenas trapped in Victor Oladipo's body that he's going to be a score-first guy. He's going to go out and he's going to get you points. Uh, He's a man-child, so to speak, with his physique. And there's a ton of defensive upside because of how his body is shaped. But there are questions about the motor. There's questions about shot selection. And, you know, if you think back to Gilbert Arenas, it was the off-court stuff that was his his undoing. But there were some legitimate questions about whether he was going to be the focal point of a a winning team because he just – While he scored the ball so well, he wasn't efficient enough and he didn't involve his teammates a ton. So I see that similar conversation following Edwards around through this process, but he remains number one on my board because I just, I can't think of anybody whose skill level and upside really tops him. And what about Lamella? Uh, I'm just not a (laughs) Lamella guy. It's, you know, maybe it's the coach in me and being somebody who I just, I would rather have guys who can hold their own on defense, and I know exactly where I'm going to plug them, but I've seen so many both lazy and physical kind of characteristics that don't jive well with considering him a strong defender. Um, When you have a top five pick, I'm looking at somebody that I'm going to consider foundational. If we hit on them, you know, they're they're going to end up being a cornerstone of our franchise, and I just, the defense stuff really worries me with Juanelo.
0: Which is crazy, right? Because Lonzo came into the league predicated as this amazing passer, which he is. He's phenomenal in the open court at passing. Less so in the half court once the game slows down. But his defense is actually more than acceptable. He's actually like a plus defender. Whereas with Lamello, I see him becoming problematic, with getting lost on switches, getting exposed off dribble drives. He just doesn't seem to have that first step to stay in front of guys.
1: No, not at all. He's he's way too upright right now, and those are things you can you can fix and you can correct. Um, but again, when you're when you have a top five pick, your goal is to hit on that as quickly as you can and have it be a foundational guy, so that you don't have many top five picks in the future that you have to make. Like you want to get back into the you know the 20s because that means that you're winning games and going deep into the postseason. So I just I don't consider Lamelo a foundational enough talent. He's a great passer. He can score okay. He's a he's a good shooter, Uh, but I don't know if it's enough to justify kind of the shortcomings he has on the other
0: end of the floor. And that's fair enough. I know there's a few people I've spoke to with similar reservations. It seems that NBA Twitter, the younger members of NBA Twitter, are all falling mellow because part of the game at the moment is your social media brand, and he comes in with a ready-made social media brand. So there is that aspect to it as well. But as a ball player, I don't think... Personally, I didn't expect him to go anywhere before seventh. But apparently my consent, my opinion on that is wrong and he'll be going in the top five.
1: Yeah, he's 13th on my board, Adam. So um, again, I'm not a huge fan either. But on the social media brand stuff there, I can't think of one thing I care less about,
0: to be honest. Exactly. As a guy, that, like I'm trying to look at things from a strictly basketball perspective and then you'll see people like, but look at the money he'll make teams in Jersey sales. And I'm like, you shouldn't be drafting based on Jersey sales because as you said, you want to get out of that top five range, not being it, but having a few extra dollars in the bank due to a few extra Jersey sales.
1: You make more money off of all the ticket sales you have from advancing to the NBA finals than you do from having one marketable player and winning 25 games each year. Right. Yeah, exactly. this, this process is about who helps you win and the Celtics are lucky they have foundational talent already in place where they're all in essence trying to color in around them right now and most of the teams in the top five or ten are looking for that foundational piece so um, again the goal is winning and hopefully everybody that goes through this process doesn't overlook or overthink that part too much.
0: Well, that pretty much wraps us up, Adam, before we go, I'd like to give you a chance to plug anything you want to plug. Um, Give everyone a shout out on your socials. Whatever you want to drop right now is perfectly fine.
1: Well, again, appreciative of you for having me on here. I know there's a few pieces coming out each week for Celtics blog and for the basketball writers. Those are the two main sources of uh, writing for me right now. But please feel free to follow me on Twitter at Spinella14 and uh, trying to put out a bunch of a great content relevant both to the nba draft and to the boston celtics moving forward so um you know again adam appreciative of you having me on here always love love chatting c's and
0: love chatting the draft so this is this has been fun yeah i've had a blast thank you very much i've got like um probably about 10 names on a list now that i'm hoping the file you sent me earlier is going to have uh tape on